episode, I'm diving into a pool of secrets and the power and often deadly consequences of love, betrayal, and jealousy. Get ready as we unravel the passionate story behind the tragic murder of Gladys Wakabayashi. I'm Stephanie Moran, and this is Wicked Ever After. Please consider subscribing to my YouTube channel and liking this episode. I appreciate all the support that you can offer. As a reminder, I do have Invisalign, so I apologize in advance if I do mispronounce some words. I am struggling with my pronunciation right now. It's 4.40 p.m. in the afternoon on June 24th, 1992, when the soft-spoken Shinji Wakabayashi receives a call from his 12-year-old daughter, Alyssa who was panicked because her mom had not shown up to pick her up at school. As a matter of fact, she was two hours late. She was unable to reach her mom, so she called her father. At this time, Shinji and Alyssa's mom, 41-year-old Gladys, had been separated for about a year after 14 years of marriage, and their divorce was soon to be finalized. They'd ended their marriage on good terms without any animosity. During the separation... Alyssa had decided to stay with her mom in Vancouver. After hanging up with his daughter, Shinji immediately hopped over to Alyssa's school to pick her up and bring her home. At around 5.30, less than an hour since Alyssa had called her dad, Shinji approached the back door and discovered that the door was unlocked. Knowing this was highly unusual behavior by his ex-wife, he told Alyssa he was going to search the house to make sure everything was okay. Shinji checked each room one by one, noting nothing out of the ordinary downstairs and seeing no signs of Gladys, he proceeded to go upstairs to begin his search. And upon entering the master bedroom, Shingji discovered a gruesome, terrifying scene. There in the ensuite between the master bedroom and bathroom laid Gladys's body, her eyes lifelessly looking up to the ceiling. She had been cut deeply on her neck, with a visible stab wounds to her arms, legs, chest, and stomach, and defensive wounds on her hands. To make things more traumatic, Shingji saw that it appeared that someone had tried to cut her head off in a fit of rage. On that day in June, Gladys had been viciously murdered. Shingji was left picking up the pieces, and Alyssa's life had forever changed. So what had really happened in that bedroom, and why was Gladys so violently killed? We are about to answer all those questions. Gladys was born in 1951 in Taiwan, and was the third child of Y.S. Mayo, who was a billionaire known as the Flower King, the baking kind, not the garden variety. In 1976, Gladys came to Canada to study piano. And two years later, in 1978, married Shinji, who was an executive with Japan Airlines. Friends and family described Gladys as a kind, compassionate, and well-liked by those around her. She loved music and was really fond of working with children. Her biggest passion was teaching music to children. It was reported by many that she didn't do it for the money, but rather for the way it made her feel to show and teach younger ones the world of music. During their marriage, Gladys shared a beautiful home with Shinji while they raised their daughter. Gladys loved her house, and I'm sure she never dreamed it would be the same place she would later expel her last breath. After Shinji had found his ex-wife's body, 
He attempted to call 911, but was unable to get through. So he went next door to the neighbor's house, which just happened to be his brother-in-law's home. The police arrived shortly after and set about investigating the gruesome scene. One veteran Vancouver police officer said, open quote, it's the most gruesome murder I've ever seen. It was really hard to understand. Everybody we talked to said Gladys was well-liked, kind, and a compassionate lady. It had to be someone who hated her with a passion, and that's hard to imagine, end quote. During the initial investigation, detectives found a massive amount of blood and a bloody footprint on the bathroom floor, which was made by a woman's high heel shoe. The evidence they were quickly gathering and the location of the crime led them to believe that Gladys had known and trusted her killer since she had been led into the dressing room. This prompted them to start looking at people inside Gladys's inner circle. While conducting a further search of the home, police discovered an intriguing message on Gladys's answering machine. One of the messages that were later played in court said, Hi love, just me, Saturday night, I was just calling, thank you, bye. Another one said, Hi darling, it's me, I'll call you back sometime, don't call me, I'll call you. Both messages were from a male voice, and the voice did not belong to Shinji. Who could they have belonged to, and could this have played any role in Gladys's murder? Detectives played the recording from Shinji to see if he could help in the identification, and he quickly identified the voice as belonging to Derek James. So who was this Derek James, and was he involved in Gladys's murder? That's what investigators wanted to find out. Derek James was an air traffic controller, was the husband of 53-year-old Jean Ann James, who also happened to be one of Gladys's friends. Jean and Gladys had first met in 1985 because their kids had attended the same school. Both families quickly became friends. After Gladys and Shinji had split, Jean became paranoid that Derek was having an affair. Assuming it was a co-worker or a stranger, but she never once suspected it might be someone close to them. In June 1992, a few weeks before Gladys's murder, Jean and Derek were living in Richmond, British Columbia, which is close to Vancouver, with their 12-year-old son. They were experiencing some serious relationship issues, and Jean was concerned that Derek was being unfaithful. Needing to talk to someone, Jean discussed her concerns about her marriage with a custodian, at her school. That's really weird, in my opinion. It's unclear if she was friends with this person or how close they were, but it seems they had to have been at least acquaintances because Jean trusted this person with information about her marriage. Jean, desperate for answers and information about her husband, asked this person if she could borrow their car in order to follow Derek around, unseen. Looking to help, this person agreed. Right around this time, Derek had gone out of town for business, which was not uncommon for him at all. But due to how suspicious Jean was, Jean called one of his co-workers to ask them about Derek's whereabouts. The co-worker told Jean that Derek was on a business trip in Toronto. Derek was in fact not in Toronto, and having seen how suspicious his wife was, he had anticipated she'd be calling to check in on him. He told his co-worker to tell Jean that he was in Toronto, 
In reality, he was in Quebec. He was there on business, but he was also there to meet up with a woman he was having an affair with. Jean was still not satisfied with where her husband was. So she asked one of her friends who happened to be a researcher at a local phone company if he could print off Derek's phone records for the dates that he was out of town. She was able to get a copy of the bill from the hotel that Derek had been staying at and saw that there were two calls made from the hotel room to the Wakabayashi residence. Armed with a paper trail and a hunch, Jean called Shinji to see who was at the residence at that time hoping to discover who Derek may have spoken to. Shinji told Jean that he was at home during that time, and he had spoken to Derek. Sounds innocent enough, right? Well, not so fast. Shinji had actually lied to Jean because Gladys had contacted him asking him to say he had spoken to Derek, if he was ever asked. It was becoming very apparent that Gladys and Derek were more than just friends. Two days after Jean spoke to Shinji about the phone call, on June 14th, Gladys drove her daughter to school and was seen by an eyewitness pulling into her garage about 9 a.m. She had a piano lesson scheduled for that day, but according to her student, she failed to show up, which was highly unusual for her. It was just a few hours later that Shinji would discover her body. Investigators poured over phone records and between the dates of May 25th and June 14th, it showed that six calls were made from Derek to Gladys's home. Each call was about 8 to 42 minutes long. This combined with the messages they had found from Derek on Gladys's machine confirmed their suspicions that Gladys and Derek were potentially having an affair. Next on their investigative list was to speak to Jean and Derek. During the interview with Derek, it came to light that he had had multiple affairs during his marriage, but that his previous infidelities had been with women that were unknown to the family and had no personal contact with them. This one was different with Gladys. While he claimed that he and Gladys never had a physical relationship, he did admit to having an emotional affair with his wife's friend. While investigating Jean and Derek, police gained some interesting information from Gladys's daughter herself. Alyssa told them that just two days prior to her mother's murder, she had found Jean in her mother's bedroom. She reported that she had heard the phone ring and entered her mom's bedroom only to find Jean. That's really weird. Jean reportedly asked Alyssa if that was Derek calling, but the phone stopped ringing before anyone can verify and Alyssa went back to her room. Later, during the trial, Alyssa was asked if she noticed anything unusual about Jean. But Alyssa said other than finding Jean in her mom's room, she didn't find her behavior odd or unusual. During their interview with Jean, the police said that Jean told them she had visited the home of Gladys on the day of Alyssa, had reported seeing her, and was sure to mention to the police that if any fingerprints were found of hers, it was because of her previous visit. This made the police wonder if she was truly innocent or just trying to skew possible evidence. Shortly after Gladys's murder, Alyssa moved in with her uncle, who lived next door. And soon after that, they decided to move back to Taiwan to get away from the press and all the bad memories. I can't imagine how hard it must have been to live next door to the house that you had so many happy memories, but also your mom was brutally killed. I can see why they decided to move. 
The more the police dug into this case, the more strange things they discovered. For example, they found out that four days after the murder, Jean went to visit Shinji and asked him for details about the death of his ex-wife. She wanted to know how she was killed, how her body was found, and other violent details about the scene. Shinji told her that he couldn't discuss much, but did tell her that he saw Gladys lying on her back with a cut on her neck. Around this time, a friend of Jean's named Sandra told the police that the relationship between Derek and Jean was always very stormy and that the two of them had struggled over the years with Derek's infidelity. She went on to say that Jean was very angry and resentful, and actually she started speaking about Gladys quite often in their conversations, which might lead us to believe that Jean had suspected Gladys of having an affair with Derek longer than everyone initially thought. A couple of weeks after the murder, on July 10th, investigators conducted a search at Jean and Derek's home. They were on the hunt for a few things, but were really hoping to find a pair of shoes that might match the footprint found in Gladys's bedroom at the crime scene. However, much to their frustration, no shoe was ever found. Investigators also took some of the floor carpet from Jean's car, but nothing conclusive or helpful came from that. Still, their suspicion of Jean grew more and more, and they decided to put her under surveillance, hoping she would lead them to more evidence. They brought Jean in for a formal questioning in July, but by then she was refusing to speak to the police without an attorney present. It was at that point that they reached a wall in the case, not having enough evidence to bring charges against Jean for the murder of Gladys, and that there were no other potential suspects at the time, which led to the case going cold. A decade had passed with no new developments, but in 2007, the Integrated Unsolved Homicide Unit reviewed Gladys's case and decided to use what they call the Mr. Big Sting Operation. So what the heck is the Mr. Big Sting Operation? It's a creation of the Canadian police that had helped them bring numerous criminals to justice. Many cold cases, such as Gladys's, had been solved using this type of operation. If there is a case where they think someone did a crime, but the police don't have enough evidence to back up their theory, this operation can be used. During the operation, police create a fantasy world and lure the potential suspects in. The team is made up of undercover officers who basically become actors and who each play a careful scripted role. With a lot of planning, they find ways to befriend the suspect and eventually create trust, often by renting limos, picking up big bar tabs, and restaurant bills. Once the first goal of gaining their trust and friendship is achieved, the undercover officers start to hint and reveal that they are in fact criminals themselves, and then start to slowly lure the suspect deeper and deeper into their believable fake crimes. When the suspects have fallen for the illusion of the criminal underworld, they present the suspect with an opportunity to make a lot of money in some big crime. But this can only be done after they meet Mr. Big, the head honcho, so he can properly vet them. As part of the process, Mr. Big will then try to coax or coerce a confession out of the suspect. We've checked you and heard you've killed, Mr. Big says. If you want us to trust you and let you in on the big score, you have to tell us what happened. 
So this is what they decided to try with Jean, to see if they could somehow get a confession and therefore a conviction. So in 2007, police went about setting up the Mr. Big sting operation with Jean. And through spa meetings, gourmet club hangouts, and other high-ticket outings, the undercover investigators finally gained Jean's trust and eventually convinced her to meet Mr. Big so she could be vetted for their crime group. In November 2008, in a Montreal hotel, she describes in great detail how she killed Gladys and would be prepared to kill again for her new friends. According to transcripts from the meeting at the hotel room, the conversation started out with Mr. Big asking Jean about who she had killed in the past. Jean tells him that she killed a lady friend of hers because she was screwing around with her husband. Mr. Big, of course, plays along and says, that must have been really hard for you and that must have really pissed you off, which Jean confirms is true. Mr. Big continues with, so you just killed her? You didn't get someone else to do it for you? After a little back and forth between Mr. Big and Jean, and after Jean had received confirmation that this conversation was strictly between her and Mr. Big, she admitted she confronted Gladys about the affair and that Gladys lied to her. She then goes on to talk about how she dug up the phone records and did her own research and just knew that it was Gladys having the affair with her husband. Jean then states that Gladys started laughing at her, and that's when she slit her throat. When Mr. Big asked her if that's all she did was slit her throat, she said, no, I was trying to get some other information out of her, so I did a few other cuts before I cut her throat. As the conversation went on, we learned that Jean was up in the dressing room with Gladys, hanging out, and she told Gladys that she had a surprise for her, a necklace. Jean then told Gladys to turn around so she could put on the necklace. With Gladys's back turned, Jean put on a pair of disposable gloves to hide DNA evidence. So then, instead of putting on a necklace, she grabbed the string from the shirt Gladys was wearing and pretended it was the necklace before taking the box cutter she had brought with her and sliced Gladys' throat. She said that Gladys didn't fight, but fell down onto the floor and kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. In a rage and in no mood for apologies, Jean continued to stab Gladys while demanding she give her details of the affair. She asked questions, and then if Gladys didn't answer, she would continue to stab her. At one point, though, she promised she would call for help if she would just give her the details, but we all know that Jean had no intention of calling for help. Soon Gladys stopped breathing, and Jean just left her face up on the floor. She then returned to her vehicle, which was parked five blocks away in order to avoid traffic cameras on the main roads. She had approached the house through alleyways to further avoid being seen or caught on camera. After returning to her car, she reported she dumped the box cutters in a recycling bin that recycled metal and that she threw her clothing in an incinerator at her kid's school. To cover her tracks even more, she traded her vehicle in for a new model just a few days later. With Jean's full confession on tape, the Mr. Big sting operation was deemed a success. On December 17, 2008, 16 years after the murder of Gladys, Jean, 69 years old, was arrested at the home she still shared with Derek and charged with first-degree murder based on her confession and some recent DNA evidence that was unable to be done back in 1992. Investigators felt they finally had enough for a conviction in court. 
The trial began in October of 2011, and her lawyers argued that there was issues with the, her supposed confession. They said that she never mentioned going to the bathroom where the footprint was found, and that many of the details she gave in her confession were taken from news reports and newspapers. But the jury didn't buy that argument. On November 4th, 2011, the jury found Jean James guilty of killing Gladys. Jean expressed no emotions. She looked straight ahead and followed the sheriff out. At the time of her conviction, she was 72 years old and was sentenced to 25 years to life, meaning it's unlikely she will ever be paroled. A month after her conviction and sentencing, Jean appealed her guilty verdict. In January 2013, the appeals court upheld her conviction. During her time in prison, Derek and her son continue to visit Jean and still believe she's innocent and has been wrongly convicted. 2015, at 75 years old, Jean requested private visits with her husband and son. These visits had been withheld due to the court claiming an unimaginable risk that she might hurt her spouse. After all, his infidelity had led her to the murder that put her behind bars in the first place. The court denied her request for private visits, telling her instead to focus on her rehabilitation and reintegration efforts. Jean remains in prison to this day and enjoys supervised visits with Derek and her son. This case brought more scrutiny to the Mr. Big Stig operation, and in July 2014, the courts ruled that the court should assume as a starting point that evidence from Mr. Big Stings is inadmissible. Furthermore, prosecutors and police have to show that the sting itself doesn't prejudice a jury against the accused, given his or her participation in this imaginary crime. And more importantly, they need to produce evidence that supports the confession, so details of the crime that only the killer could know or physical evidence. The court noted suspects could offer false confessions because they want to make the money from the crime, which could be thousands and thousands of dollars, or they could be intimidated by the police officers pretending to be ruthless leaders of a criminal gang. Shortly after, Canada's police chiefs met in Victoria, and Vancouver Chief Jimmy Chu, the outgoing president of their association, defended the Mr. Big sting tactic, stating that most police departments are already making efforts to avoid false confessions and are not encouraging them. As of the time of this recording, these sting operations are still legal in Canada and are still being used throughout Canada in the hopes of putting criminals behind bars. As we conclude our investigation into the gruesome case of Gladys, we're left grappling with the devastating power of betrayal and the destructive consequences of an illicit affair. Gladys' life was intertwined with a web of secrets, passion, and broken truth, a web that ultimately led to her demise. It is a haunting reminder of the depths to which emotions can sink when pushed to their limits. Please let me know what you think of this episode in the comments. Please also hit the subscribe button on YouTube or whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. You can stay connected to me on Instagram and TikTok at this is Stephanie Mora. Until next time, stay safe.